Welcome to part two of our show today on the Mayan Mysteries with Stacy James Fry. Hello, hello. Fry? Really? Fry is your last name? <laughs> yeah, deep fry, small fry. I usually get that when I was a kid. No, I was thinking about Stephen Fry. Oh, oh yeah, Stephen, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, as everybody can hear, it's a solely the native Indian name right there. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't give you my, uh, my Indian name, but... Uh... <laughs> Okay, so uh, we were talking about, before the break, uh, you were mentioning your novel frequently, and we're going to get into that now, but let me first ask you, mm -hmm. uh, I know from uh, uh, Le Plon... Yeah, yeah. How do you... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, John. Mm -hmm. So I have uh, Plon John's book here. Um, oh, so you really want to get into him, hey? <laughs> Well, uh, at least we'll name drop him. So, Queen Mo and the Egyptian Sphinx, that one? No, it's the one called uh, Maya Atlantis. Oh, okay. Well, I have a different one. It's called Queen Mo and the Egyptian Sphinx. Oh, yeah, you're right. That's the uh, subtitle, Queen Mo and the Egyptian Sphinx. Yes, you're right, yeah, yeah. that one. Well, you know, he, he strikes me as kind of, well, that was the original title, actually. Um, right, right. So, I don't know. They obviously changed it because, you know, they wanted to uh, make it more modern, probably. From from 1896. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, um, Which is uh, incredible, that old of a publication and still so time-tested. Yeah. Well, the whole this whole book, I, you know, I don't know how deep I want to get into it because it's been a couple of years since I read it. But I have it with me because I love the... Um, the mapping that he did, the uh, sort of relational mapping that he did in relation to kind of his correlation between Mayan language and the Egyptian language and so on. Yeah. yeah. Your approach is the Mayan, Mayan is the Atlantis. Well, yeah. uh, I, have, I have a lot of books on that. Very interesting topic, but like I told you, I've never been interested in mm -hmm. the South American stuff. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we meet in the middle in this book here. Well, we meet, yeah, I guess so, hey? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you really jumped on that one. I'd, I'd like to see your bibliography. We could totally uh, change, exchange. What's that? Mine? Um, yeah. Did you see? Yeah, yeah, because I was interested in that. Right. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, by the way, speaking of uh, Mayans, in fact, I have to give them kudos also for having been very early on with the notion of a zero. <laughs> That sounds like nothing, but if anyone knows anything, that's a huge concept. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And a sign of, of real advancement. Now, it's an exoteric myth that nobody, like, I mean, the Indians had a concept, the Greeks had that concept, but it wasn't very prevalent and uh, often it was limited to certain areas. Mm -hmm. But just to have that notion shows uh, advancement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the uh, the concept of zero isn't, of course, the word isn't zero. It's actually the empty house. Right. That's what they call it. That's how they conceptualize it in their iconography and photography. It's the empty house. Mm. Yeah. And it's the base level of their numerical system, which is uh, 13, 20 time. Mm. Which, again, is just a magical phenomena of perfect fractal time. 
the numbers keep changing hats. So, you know, as you go up the scale in the fractal system, uh, the same numbers appear. It's, it's like fractals, right? It's like number groupings. Mm. And they mirror each other. So that 260 cycle of numbers that relate to that 1320 time are the same numbers that relate to the Venus synodical cycle that relate to the, the, the Venus synodical, or to the Mars synodical cycle, to Jupiter, Saturn, blah, 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 all the way out. And the numbers are exactly the same. It's like picture perfect fractal system in scale. Mm. It's amazing. Mm. Once you account for the days out of time, it all works. Mm. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. So, Plongeon. Yeah. I know from his book that uh, numerology, I, I mean in the meaning of number mysticism, was also a big deal in the Mayan. Yeah, it's 13-20-10. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah, but not just in the calendar, but that they had uh, yes. spiritual, philosophical concepts for numbers and geometry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it's uh, that's what we'll get into, 1320 time, and then we'll talk more about that, or you'll talk more about that with Lauren. Right. I'll set the stage for it, and then he'll take you off into the stratosphere. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, game for that. So, did you mention to him uh, coming on? Oh yeah, yeah, he's yeah, he's, he's game. The first things I mentioned, absolutely. Oh yeah, he wants to do it. Okay, for sure he does. Absolutely, I told him that. I told him a lot of things. Um, yeah. It's just yeah. you know, in the context of what's going on now, okay. you just need to fix Skype. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a few things he has to get over. One is the uh, the acceptance agreement on Skype, and also the acceptance agreement on WhatsApp. He's he's having a hard time with that. Oh yeah, but but that's just brilliant because he's right it's it's so I know. so so it's just a hurdle right now that i'm trying to work his way through because there's really no way around it i mean we it's the only way we're going to be able to get him on right yeah um, yeah welcome to my world huh oh. <laughs> well we'll see we'll no, um, i mean he's a very unusual guy when i told you that i have a guy for you i meant it like this guy <laughs> <laughs> is familiar with everything on your channel, number one. Oh, wow, number wow. two, he's the most sophisticated understanding of the Mayan calendar, per se, and it's absolutely amazing what he's discovered. Right. It's not just the days out of time, it's just that when you account for them, wow, the fractal aspects of the calendar are stunning mm. from a precise astronomical phenomenon perspective. It's yeah. stunning. Mm. And, and it's very difficult for me to explain it because I don't have the background in the math that he does. Mm. But my God, when he gets going and he sets you up for an understanding, for an aha moment, fuck, is it come through? It's really good. And, and you know, he's is he is deep into this shamanistic daykeeper inaugural. Right. But he may not talk about it. No. Um, but to give you an idea, in his tradition, they do peyote enemas. And they do... Uh, the, the sun dance. You know what the sun dance is? Well, when I hear that, I imagine like Indians with the feather decorations dancing around a fire. No, no this, is where they, this is where they put pegs through your skin and your chest, and they hang. They put what now? They put they put pegs. They insert pegs underneath the skin, mm -hmm. through the chest skin, on top of both chest pectoral areas, and they hang you from it. Oh right, that's the sun dance. And Interesting. And they go until they rip out. And so that wasn't that wasn't a torture method. 
No, that's a shamanistic tradition because Jeez. trials of endurance and psychotropic experiences combined right. are one of the most effective ways to receive these transcendent experiences. Right, right. And so, you know, while on this third or fourth day of peyote enema with not eating and not sleeping and not drinking water and hanging from his <laughs> chest, so, yeah. things happen. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. But anyway. Okay, so you just have to work with him for a while and then he'll be ready. Well, it's all here. It's in his book. You know, I don't have to master it. I just have to keep referring to the book whenever I'm lost. And uh, that's what I do. So... Uh, but, but, but Lauren, he has published books too, right? That's what I'm saying. His book, I'm using. Oh, his book. Yeah. Okay. His okay. book has the reference mm. point. So I refer to his book anytime I get lost. And, right. And, uh, and that's great because this is a recent edition, right? This is just recently mm. that I've come across his work. It's literally been in the last three months. So mm. this is a benefit of taking your time to write these things because as information emerges – and product gets that much better. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. But now it just happens to be the final piece of the puzzle for me, anyway, as far as the um, the way my book works. Mm, okay. Hey, in, in this long list of names you <laughs> shared with me, I see one uh, Richard Thompson. Is that the same Richard Thompson who wrote Forbidden Archaeology with Cremo, or is it another dude? Do you know? Richard Thompson, or is it Peter Tompkins that we're talking? Richard Thompson hmm. because because Richard Thompson I'm thinking of he but he was more in the Vedic tradition are oh, you talking about Richard he, Thompson yeah Richard Thompson to Michael Cremo he's dead now but right uh, Richard D Thompson was a um, Mayan um, let me just pull it up here because he's kind of a uh, D. Thompson. No, that's another one then, because the one I'm talking about, his name was Richard Leslie Thompson. Uh, L. Yeah, you're talking about the work for virtual reality and and that sort of thing. No, Richard Thompson is a is a is a academic Orthodox academic. Orthodox, uh, yeah. Zionist. Okay. okay. Mm. Yeah. And and like you told me, they they didn't even see through the time screw up of the time conversion. That tells tells you everything you need to know. No, I mean, you know, what's kind of interesting to me is that that a lot of these people who who are in the academic world, they don't even really pay attention to the calendar system, mm. and that is really an admission of the inaccuracy. Yeah, I think. Because they get to a point where they understand that it's inaccurate, and they kind of more or less abandon it mm, mm, mm. as a you know as a uh, as a source for information. And after 2012, it's probably a leper project. They, they fear that they, they, they probably don't want. I mean, they will think that if they gave it too much attention and credit, they will contribute to a new doomsday hysteria. <laughs> well, they've just ignored it. And by ignoring it, there's no longer a focus on it and there's not a lot of uh, purpose in it within the academic field because it's not a it's not a source of PhD or master's degrees or anything like that. And it's simpler to keep the Mayan contribution as a local short-lived phenomenon instead of a... Yeah, I mean, they're, they're fighting for dollars, right? Mm. They're fighting for dollars. Yeah, but I'm thinking an ideological agenda is to keep keep it you know anything that threatens the time scale they're operating from is not something you will be rewarded to explore within academia it'd be an admission of inaccuracy and uh, as a reason yeah. so they would be threatening them yeah just a little bit threatening I, I think with one exception and that's in the very nature of it they can't avoid it and that would be 
göbrekli tepe. Mm-hmm. Well, there are many people who have come across Lauren's work, mm. but typically what happens, and we know this from you know just our understanding of academia, is that the highest virtue of academia seems to be skepticism, right? <laughs> yeah, and and they 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 applaud that skepticism because they see it as part of integral to the scientific process, right? Uh, Which is true, uh, but no. of course it calcifies very quickly into orthodoxy, as we know, right? Yeah, but 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 it's no, but look, it's a conflation of skepticism as a principle and pseudo skepticism as a religion. Mm-hmm. It's not nothing scientific about it uh, because because they ignore. No, I agree with you. I'm just saying from their perspective. If they were real skeptics, they wouldn't ignore facts. Yeah. They wouldn't ignore scientific method. Uh, it, it wouldn't automatically mean that you have to keep the. I've been quarrelling with Alex about this for so long because he's giving up on science. I'm saying no. Let's just give up on bunk science. Yeah, it's bunk science to insist that we have only lived. You know, that there's no intelligent, ancient... Uh, I mean, you can use science and you can have the weirdest, entertain the weirdest notions, really. Mm-hmm. Including soul and, and time travel. and Well, time travel is, of course, accepted. But you can have all the mysteries and spiritualities of the world and still use science. Mm-hmm. Problem with skepticism is that it's science plus a materialist ideology. And that's where the problem... Uh, occurs, and I, I'm just saying it because listeners have to get this drilled into their skull that skepticism <laughs> does not equal science. It's a faith-based belief system. You see what I mean? Yeah, I understand where you're coming. I understand where yeah. you're coming from. Yeah. The only point I'm making is that uh, you know, just to sidestep the issue of trying to berate scientific process and that orthodox academia, you and I are reaching to the converted in your listeners for the most part, I think. Um, I hope so, because the scientific method is so important. It is, it is. And I think that it's true that skepticism is the first step, but that doesn't mean closed-mindedness, right? Mm. It just means that, okay, well, we're not going to jump in with two feet here. Mm. That's all it means. Mm. Uh, that's all it should mean, right? Mm. And, and and so we're going to take a rigorous process of validating findings, mm. right? Mm. Uh, especially in a physics sense, for instance, which is sort of the most applicable field for that that application because you're dealing with physical reality. You have to be able to duplicate something physically, which is typically known as bench science. And and, uh, if you can't do that, then it doesn't meet the rigors, right? And then you have this sort of um, division point or this turning point, you could say, in scientific method in the early part of the 20th century, maybe even just slightly before it, when a fellow like Tesla comes along and is at the peak of a, a tidal wave of scientific rigor mm. that um, culminates in the person of Tesla. And then as soon as that happens, you get this bizarre left turn into theoretical science yeah. founded solely in mathematics that has no bench science application. Yeah, and that's that's not even the worst decay. I mean, right, uh, and we go off into theological constructs of the universe that don't actually exist in bench scientific terms. Again, that's not even the worst. I mean, that's some kind of mysticism in a futuristic uh, branding. I don't mind that much. The worst manifestations you find in this field we're discussing today, yeah. uh, or one of the worst, is precisely in archaeology, in anthropology, in. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, in 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 uh, studies of uh, religious studies of native uh, or 
an ancient traditions. That, that's where the horror show really manifests. And you interviewed Michael Cremo, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, twice actually. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, he's amazing. I love his stuff. Yeah. So he's sort of at the core of that whole issue. He's like, well, you know. And he shows you you can use uh, science without adopting the materialism dogma. I mean, he has. Well, for sure. And first of all, he's just like, look, here, fact. Yeah. Right? Here, here's an object. It doesn't sit within your narrative. So your narrative has to adjust, not the way around, not the other way around. Exactly. It, it, it's simple, right? It's so simple. Mm. And so back to what we're talking about, I wanted to jump in there on something that you mentioned because you mentioned time travel. Yeah. Time travel, you mentioned sort of off the cuff because, you know, you've kind of had an exploration of that in terms of modern scientific theory. But the reality is that that existed within the shamanistic tradition. Right. And this is something that you want to talk to Lauren about, so mark that down. Okay, okay. Because he actually has some fairly rigorous uh, research in that field as far as how one does... Let's just clarify to listeners, we're not talking about time travel in terms of a technological gizmo, but in terms of psychonautics. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, that is correct. And using utilizing their understanding of this fractal nature of time, real time, as a gateway. Because mm. uh, if it's a fractal, all you're doing is going up and down the scale. You're not actually traveling anywhere. Mm. You're just moving in and out of the fractal. Mm. That's it. Like a UFO. And, <laughs> yeah. It's, and that's the psychonautic process, right? Mm. And I, I build on that, and that's actually at the core of uh, the novel series. Mm. That's another... Teaser. Kind of. Uh, did you read uh, Graham Hancock's novel about the Neanderthals and oh, the, are you familiar with that one? Yeah, they're coming across all the uh, psychotropic drugs and that being a full expansion of the consciousness. Yeah, and, and but but the thing is, he kind of uh, has a concept of time travel too, where a girl today is connected to a tribeswoman. Maybe it was her in a former life. I, I don't know, but he kind of played around with the time thing too. <laughs> We talked about it earlier. It's in the genetic material. Yeah, and what what she did, what the protagonists do in her uh, contemporary manifestation, and what the protagonists do in the Neanderthal tribe mm -hmm. yeah. has an influence in how this will, yeah. uh, in the outcome, because there is no linear time, so they are operating at the same time. Now you're talking about the core concept of my novel. Absolutely. Wow. Then you have to go and read Graham Hancock so you make sure you're not repeating some of his uh, stuff because you will be blamed for copycatting. <laughs> no, I won't. No, I won't. I, I'm, I'm very confident that uh, I can trace a uh, genesis of that concept back 20 years. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm just saying if people read uh, Hancock and then read you, they may think you have your ideas from him. Yeah, I don't care. I don't mm. care what people think. Sure, sure. But OK, so here's another incentive to read it then uh, to see how it differs or how similar the concept is. It would, would be the first thing I would do if I discovered someone else playing around with the same concept. Sometimes, sometimes it's better not to know. Right. That's my case. But yeah, as long as you haven't written it, but you you are done, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. I wrote it a long time ago. I wrote this concept a long time ago. That's what I'm saying. Mm. Like the genesis of my um, concept can be proven to be more than 20 years old. So 
and he, it didn't come from him. Yeah. Okay, so so uh, let's get right to it. Yeah, no, I'll be happy to because as we get into the whole genesis of the book and some of the concepts, I mean, some of them originate from my personal experience more than academic research or anything like that. So okay, but but before we go into that stuff, uh, oh, we were talking about the skulls. Yeah. So uh, uh, the skulls. Should we just wrap it up? up? Actually, you know what? I think out of context, the uh, spoiler that I gave just sounds like hocus pocus but when i get into the um context of the novel where i actually the genesis of that idea makes more sense yeah okay so and you know of course you know that Mm -hmm. of course you noticed um um, the link i sent you um yeah i did i checked in there okay okay so these these cave systems they extend deep. Yeah, network, right? Yeah, those caves are incredible. There's actually quite a few documentaries about um, people going through them, and there's a lot of artifacts in them. That's interesting. Oh, just the uh, cave systems are, um, I mean, they're vast, right? They're a leftover from that asteroid that hit 69 million years ago or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, it's got an Mayan name to it. I can't remember it now, but... Um, it splashed up all that land and created these kind of like catacombs, you know, like a honeycomb of cave systems, underground systems. So you can imagine how uh, how excited the Mayan were to use those systems as a physical representation of the underworld. Right, because they had uh, underground structures, right? Well, yeah, they had underground structures. Well, typically what happened is these city-states are actually built over top of entry points. Mm. To major catac- uh, major cave systems. That's one of the key characteristics of most of these classic era city states. Is that they're built over top of these. Have you been to this submerged Mayan underworld? Well, as I was saying, I'd like to do some scuba diving. I've done basically. You can go and swim through all the cenotes, right? You know what a cenote is? No. They're like these little pools that show up in the middle of the landscape, and these are the entry points. Oh, right. So you wouldn't even know that it could be an entry point. You would think it was just a pool. Oh, you're back. There was a moment. Oh, did I disappear? Yeah, there was a moment. So, yeah, so I was saying while I was disappearing, I was saying so people could just pass these points and they wouldn't even know that it was an entrance. Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Uh, seems to be having trouble with uh, the network today. Yeah, let me just see. Yeah, connection's good. I'm guessing it's down in Me- Mexico. <laughs> Maybe. Let me just check. The problem, I mean. Yeah, yeah. How are you now? Can you hear me now? Yep. Okay. I just did something that should resolve that. Okay, so let's go back to topic. So, okay. of course, you being a film man and everything, sure. why... Why a graphic novel and not simply either documentary or entertainment? Because, as you know better than me, books are passé. That's last century, right? <laughs> and uh, it's not coming back. And <laughs> and you reach people much more through visual media. So, so why go that old school route? Well... It's a business model. So my company is an intellectual property company. And if you want to protect intellectual property into the mainstream media, you have to have a strong foundation for that IP. 
Otherwise, it's easy to manipulate uh, a little bit of the content and essentially get ripped off. And I've had that experience numerous times. Mm. So starting with a, uh, a novel project and then expanding to a graphic novel project and then into games and so forth, essentially you're building your own audience before you even get into more of a mainstream format as far as film and television are concerned. And, um, and you can control the IP and the content and the creative much better as well as protecting your ass. Mm. literally and as far, as far as the format of a graphic novel it's uh, essentially a script a visual script it's a storyboard so you're already developing the content into a film or a streaming series format by doing a comic book slash graphic novel format to begin with yeah mm -hmm. clever mm -hmm. and um, yeah I guess graphic novels are still a thing? Well, to be honest, novels are still a thing. <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the sales figures on, on um, literary content is much greater than you probably think. Uh, it's just probably not content that you're interested in. Yeah, yeah. Particularly uh, young adult fiction is the uh, leading content brand or style. Jesus, young adult. I mean, who are these people? Are they they're reading on their pads then? I'm assuming PDF. Uh, no, they're reading books. Uh, my niece is a great example. So she's well, she's not a she's not a young adult anymore. She's 25. But through that entire period, post Harry Potter, you know, there was a, a voracious reading group of people, and they needed to have their content uh, desires met. So. That really sparked a young adult fiction trend. Wow. And then, of course, you have the pop fiction stuff, which essentially is a ghostwriter matched with a, an influencer to create a piece of crap. That's how the, <laughs> the industry works at this point as far as publishing is concerned. But novels, literary novels, particularly in any kind of um, attempt to, to write something that's, say, in the vein of Henry Miller or, you know what I mean? Yeah. That 1950s, 1960s quality is rare and usually doesn't get the support for very simple reasons. The industry has painted itself into a corner economically. So a publisher, for instance, will have to assess a book, say you're a new author, right? Mm. Uh, you've got no, no background, no uh, built-in audience, no uh, social media following or, or anything of the sort. But you write an excellent novel and uh, you're the only one who knows it or you and a couple people. You take it to a publisher First thing they're doing is they're not even reading it. They're handing the content summary to the marketing department. The marketing department is making a quick assessment whether or not that those uh, it's, it's commercially viable. Yeah, but it's to a very specific benchmark. So they have to, with confidence, say that the book is going to sell if it appears on the shelves uh, without any marketing uh, budget to the tune of two hundred thousand in the United States. So they have to believe that that book is going to sell 200,000 copies without a marketing push before they'll even consider reading it. They can't tell that. It's such an illusionary job. I don't know how they manage to. <laughs> I agree. I agree. They can't tell that. And so they just go with what they know, and that is to take an influencer. And, and usually those people with those jobs are idiots anyway. So uh... Not everybody's an idiot, but they are trapped by their own industry because the the uh, the way the costs break down, for instance, so the publisher takes on this risk, right? Hmm. They invest in the publication, which means they invest in the printing, the distribution, and the warehousing. Now, the warehouse will take 50% of the book value just to have it in the warehouse and just to ship it out to wherever they got to be shipped whenever, hmm. uh, you know, that order comes in. Then you have to have the book agents go out to all these sales outlets 
and discuss the book along with a bunch of others and say, this is what you want on your shelves. This is what we're looking to put on your shelves this year, blah, 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 when it's going to come out, when it's going to da, da, da. And they also have to make an assessment and be confident in the book in order to take it. Interesting. And uh, you got to pay them. And then the book uh, retailer, which doesn't really exist anymore now that COVID's come along, mm. <laughs> that has wiped out that, that part of the industry, uh, at least temporarily or maybe permanently. One never knows. But just to continue with this story, the breakdown of the, um, of the cost breakdown is the, the retailer will take it. They'll take 50% of what's left of the, um, of the, the, the suggested retail price. Mm. And then they'll, so you basically get, say it's a book of seventeen ninety five. So essentially at this point, close to 13 or $14 of the, of the total value of the sale of the book is, is already spoken for. Yeah. And the remainder has to be recouped by the, the, um, the actual publisher. So the reason it's a 200,000 benchmark is because typically the numbers work out to break even 200,000 sales. And that's when the, 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 uh, the writer actually makes a dollar. No wonder people are self-publishing more and more. Exactly. So even, even Pharrell is doing that. Well, of course, and it's smart because you can use print-on-demand initially, yeah. and then you can use print-on-demand for volume, and you can be your own warehouse. And then when you start to actually build up a good following and, and have a, a strong outing, that's when a publisher will start taking an interest. Of course, you could also do what I'm doing, which is build up a, a pre-launch audience and then run it as a, a pre-sale, sort of a complex pre-sale on a crowdfunding platform. Mm. And that way you have a big push into the market, and that's really a, a numbers game. So in my case, I'm looking for, you know, at a minimum 500,000 pre-launch subscribers. Those are people who maybe have heard this podcast or another podcast that I'll do, or they've come across my website through search engine optimization. I'm also dumping a certain amount of dollars into uh, paid ads on Facebook, which I've done some tests on to see how... I hope you're targeting uh, Mayans because they will be passionate about this. <laughs> no, I mean it because, you know, uh, one thing is to be incentivized by something like you know an interest in something uh, but identification you, you see that in politics too identification politics is taking over and no i don't i don't target the minds first of all they don't read oh. um if you if you come here you'll see what i'm talking about they're they're really earthy people they're just busy weaving making arts and crafts farming right they're into primary industry yeah yeah you know they're just living a very basic lifestyle and uh, they're not a, a mass readership however as i pointed out to you i do a lot of research uh, in terms of where traffic is and what, and what topics just using one search query which is my calendar there is continues to be about 1.8 on average 1.8 million organic searches per month on um, Google's platform Jeez. for my calendar every month. And then you have the variation. So all told, mm. with all the different search queries that are relevant to this topic, whether it be Chichen Itza, Mayan Riviera, Mayan calendar, Mayan history, you know, Conquest era, Hernan Cortez, you know, all these different search queries. There's about worldwide, uh, there's about a monthly um, uh, search query basis of about 125 million mm. so building the um content up to get in front of that audience is really the game on a pre-launch campaign which is what i'm doing with you in part 
because we're, you know, I've obviously been a fan of the show and I think this fits with your audience. And of course you do as well, otherwise we wouldn't be here. And they're going to, you know, listen to this, perhaps go to the website uh, and subscribe to get information on the uh, pre-launch campaign. Whether or not they end up donating to that or not is irrelevant. It's just a numbers game. Mm. A certain percent will. Yeah. And on average, that percentage. Yeah, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that people uh, do that. Even in, I mean, your timing is poor. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is a depression. They're trying to make it portray it as a recession, but it's really a depression. And combined with the, the decline in book readers, it's um, uh, it's. It, I mean, these things were easier before. Is all I'm saying. I'm not trying to put the wind out of your sails. It's great that you do this. No, um, that's not true. Uh, there, there's ways to tack. I think the in order to <laughs> succeed with it, you have to do yeah. your homework. As yeah, you I think don't. that the. Um, impression you have is actually inaccurate more people are, are reading now than they were mm. that's number one wow they're also looking for items that are less expensive i just saw the number was down by seven percent but i'm not sure if that's books like you can hold in your hand books or if it includes pdf and stuff like that because if you're saying more people are reading now and you're talking about books obviously not just anything then it has to include uh, software books right no, I'm talking about online sales of books, independently published books. I'm very specific in my research. So when we look right. uh, you know, this way that I'm attacking it, you have to look for metrics. Specific. But are you talking about prints or are you talking about everything? Both. Yeah, it's usually print and PDF format. Or not PDF, sorry, um, ebook reader. Ebook is the word I was looking for. Yeah, okay. I, I, I guess ebooks are still afloat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're increasing. They're actually increasing. They're increasing, and and as an item, as a sale item, uh, typically for um, gifting, it's actually an, on the increase now that we're moving into sort of. But but hang on, hang on. They are increasing. Are they increasing more than physical books are d- decreasing? Otherwise, it's just people going from one to the other. Again, you can't talk about the industry in, in broad spectrum like that. Uh, you know, when we're talking about books, we have to talk about what kind of books mm. specifically. True. What kind of books, what format, what country, what age group, what topic. You know, you have to drill down, and that's where you get your information. If you're just doing it as a whole, then you really don't know anything. You're just getting a general. It's kind of like doing a poll in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. The but, same thing. but half of uh, American population are not reading. That's a uh, generality for you right there. So I, I was just thinking that's the trend uh, that's been going for 20 years. So the totality of reading is going down. But uh, yeah, I bet those who are into specific things are already awake. That's right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, they're already... So the, so- yeah. So the sale of science fiction fantasy is going up over that 20 years. Mm. Mm-hmm. Game of Thrones, stuff like that's probably helping. Yeah, historical based is even more on the increase. Mm. And this is among readers who 10 years ago were uh, coming out of Harry Potter. Right, that too, yeah. So now they're 20 to 27 to 30. And I guess Lord of the Rings have also put their mark on it. You can only read that so many times. <laughs> No, I'm taking, taking the movies makes it uh, available in people's consciousness, especially those who grow up, and then often they go to the books. Like Game of Thrones, it had a big following of readers, 
before the show, but <laughs> it uh, just exploded after the show, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I would so, say that it had a fanatical readership, but not a large readership, right. uh, sim- simply because the book was so long. The book series was so long. Yeah, you're, you're right. But it got a large readership. And they, the brilliant thing was, and I, I don't know how much this was planned, but after a couple of seasons, people wouldn't wait when the books were ahead. So they went straight to the books to continue. They were hooked. Sure. And we see occasionally organic stuff like this. You had uh, Polo Coelho with the Alchemist, mm-hmm. which almost got no help from the publisher. It was like the same as uh, the Da Vinci Code. Both of them went viral, organically viral, among physical book readers. So they made it themselves. Yeah, I don't think it uh, went organically. Again, this uh, this is a topic that I'm very familiar with. Uh, I worked in the publishing industry for quite a few years. I was in the publicity department. I founded a publicity department for a self-publishing company mm-hmm. called Granville Island Publishing in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started that in 2002 and, and went essentially about 10 years with them. Uh, and I've been keeping track, of course. So you're saying these two books did not have an organic... Um... No, they, they reach a tipping point is what happens. And then it goes viral. Yeah. But before that, it's it's an uphill battle from a publicity and coordinated publishing um, effort hmm. uh, with the media and, and all that. So they usually pick a market they think is ripe for that topic in that genre. And what I mean by market is whether or not they publish first in the U.S. or they publish first in the U.K. or Germany or wherever they think the author is going to actually um, be perceived the best. So, Mm. you know, the mass market, of course, is in the United States and you typically include that in any kind of strategy. But if you're dealing with a small publishing company with a limited publicity uh, budget, then you have to be very specific in how you approach it. And you can push a book into a viral uh, entity, and you can't predict, of course, which ones are going to do that. Mm. Uh, And the ones that you mentioned did go viral. Uh, However, you can have a successful book, which is essentially to, just to give you an idea, in in Canada, you can slap a label, a best-selling label on a book Mm. in a store Mm. just selling 5,000 copies. (laughs) Mm. And that's a gimmick. So it's a low bar? Oh, it's it's to influence... Yeah, they lower... They lower the bar on purpose, obviously, so that they yeah, can... Okay, so, so, so people actually buy those books if they see that they are brand-marked as bestsellers? Yeah, in some cases, the publishing company will buy back a certain percentage of their own books to ensure they can slap that label on them, mm. because it's a whole different shelving arrangement at the retail. Right. Right. So as soon as you can slap that label on it, you become front and center <laughs> on the on the, uh, on the retail stand. So people still buy books by where they are shelved. That's so weird. Wow. That's so weird to me. They just walk in the store and they see the the stickers <laughs> with all the best books, that? and they go there. Who does that? Most Who people. Who has the time? I mean, oh, oh I think I'm going to buy a book today. Let's see what's <laughs> on. This is like a fish market, right? But, yeah. But, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> I, I I get that it worked like that in the nineteen sixties, uh, mm. something. But today, that's so weird. Actually, that works more. That works more now than it does uh, in the nineteen sixties. They were selling more books. In the nineteen sixties, people did more investigation in what topic and what re, you know, and the right. quality and everything. Right. And now they walk in the store and they don't have a lot of time, so they go and they look right. at the shelf that they're used to. It becomes a patterned way of behavior. People who walk into bookstores nowadays and are just looking for a quick pickup of a book they can read, say, on the subway to and from 
uh, work. They're just walking in, looking at the nearest, most attractive-looking shelf, right? That's number one. Then they go and they say, okay, these are the top sellers, which means it's not just me. It's a lot of other people who like it. So that's sort of a social proof, right? And I I bet gifts are also a a big incentive for those people. Yeah. And then you have all the little doohickeys and useless things that they usually crowd around those shelves and earn a upsell on those types of things. That's really how the Mm. retail market works everywhere. It's just monetizing space, right? Yeah. you know, that's that's why Starbucks is so good. They monetize yeah. every square foot of their retail space better than any other retailer in the world. Yeah. That's why they've been successful. Mm. Mm. And Amazon, you, you, you said uh, the retailers were suffering, but unfortunately, Amazon is one of the companies who's, yeah. who, to begin with, they don't deserve being this global giant uh, crushing. <laughs> but and, but the, who gained... On the Corona crisis, Amazon. Of course. Yeah. So, um, so it's actually it's back to certain. I'm a book reader. I'm a book buyer, but I function opposite of every target group you described. <laughs> <laughs> I decide which book I want before I my ass leaves the sofa, and um, <laughs> usually I actually buy them online or mm-hmm. order them. Yeah. Well, more and more people are doing that for obvious reasons. Yeah. And as I was mentioning before, it becomes a pattern of behavior. And so the entire industry is actually working in my favor. Mm. So that's just a contradiction of the assumption, which is less people are reading, less people are buying books. The book is probably less likely to get off the ground through crowdfund because people have less money. That would be the surface assumption. That's not what my research indicates. My research indicates the opposite. Mm. The less people can travel to an area, don't forget that the uh, Mayan area receives about 15 million visitors a year. Mm. Well, not now. Mm. So how do they satisfy their interest? Mm. Well, that's another trend in my direction. There's a lot of ways to look at this. Mm. And as you look at them, you know, that February, March time of next year, 2021, when we could see a a peel back of a lot of these draconian COVID measures, Mm. And that's going to generate a lot of excitement, a lot of spending. And, but what's their pattern of behavior still locked in the winter sort of time is online purchasing. And also, they tend to get their um, their tax rebates, their tax uh, rebates at that time, January, February, mm. March. Mm. So time a crowdfund, they have their discretionary spending that in their pattern of thinking has always gone to donations and discretionary spending. They're not going to go in mass, but they've also not been traveling. Hmm. They've also not been. Wouldn't you expect podcasts to do better during the lockdowns? Yes, but uh, everyone I've talked with haven't noticed that. Me included. It's because people are focused almost exclusively on this insane news cycle. Hmm. So, what are they actually consuming their their discretionary time with? Probably fixating on whether or not the COVID measures are going to increase or decrease, whether or not they believe or disbelieve the COVID reality, mm. whether or not Trump is going to win. Uh, if you hate him, then you you think that everything he's doing right now is illegal. If you love him, then you think that everything that's been happening in the election is illegal, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And it's just a fixation. Mm. Yeah. And it's consuming the mass market right now. Mm. Yeah. Like typically, I was just thinking about this last night. I, I usually would be reading a little bit more or watching a little more Netflix or whatever. But what am I doing? I'm on YouTube digging for information. Hmm. 
about what's coming. And I think that's I think that's typical of what's happening now. Also, the types of topics that used to fascinate people seem irrelevant in the midst of a of a period in time when stakes are very high. Yeah, but on the other hand, I've been made aware that you know I've had some COVID shows. And uh, many people have then said, oh, no, 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 we want, this is, we're so fed up with this. Yeah, that's the point. Making <laughs> we, that they're we're coming to you to escape this reality. So, so that's like an aspect too, that people want something else. Than, that's my point exactly. It's, it's so interesting yeah. how markets tend to go, you know, I, I can't speculate on the percentage of time, but they go against expectations. Mm. And the expectation for you would be to do a COVID show and it should get a lot of interest. Mm. But the interest in COVID isn't on a, a lengthy analysis. It's on the immediacy of updates. Yeah, yeah. And, and podcasts don't do well in immediacy. So Not, not long-form podcasts, no. When mm. people are looking for a three- to four-hour distraction, they're looking for something that they can dive in that takes their mind away from their increased mass consumption of alarmist news cycle. Mm. That's the information I'm getting. So, yeah, yeah. you know, so you know, I could be uh, I could be wrong, but I think that this topic uh, is actually going to feed into a uh, desire for respite. Mm. And yet, it's still relevant to what's going on because we're discussing. You know, as we get into the novel topic, we're we're discussing why and how did the ninth century Maya collapse as a civilization abandon their city state? Yeah. I have that scheduled to ask you, but um, <laughs> but that's the overarching concept, right? And so and so that and as I promote it that way, and I'm doing tests as we're you know as I'm going along on Facebook ads. Typically, Facebook ads to get somebody's email to get them to give you their email on the basis of what you're doing, not on the sale of something, but just on the exploration of a topic. Mm-hmm. Usually, costs about a dollar fifty to dollar seventy five, depending on the topic, on average. Right now, I'm getting anywhere from six cents to thirty-six cents. Hmm. And if you ask any marketing expert, that's, those are insane numbers. They're not even getting those numbers today for themselves, but for some reason, I am on my topic. I also put together very well, good videos for those ads, hmm. and that has something to do with, and you know, the fact that I'm presenting free content. Yeah, yeah. How, didn't you already make a series on the Mayans, or was that a broader thing? Yeah, as I mentioned last um, episode, I did develop a documentary series called The Divine Archive. Mm. I developed that for 2012 to serve as kind of a bit of a cold water, uh, I guess you could say, on the eschatological phenomenon and the frenzy, mm. because it really wanted to dive deep into actual Mayan history, you know, from pre-classic all the way to today. Because mm. even post-colonial era, the Mayan um, topic is very interesting. I mean, most people don't even know that there was a, a 50-year, 54, 55-year civil war in the Yucatan between the Maya and the Spanish authorities that precipitated that region, which was its own country at that time, to join Mexico in order to gain the support of its army. And that is the... the when was this? This is um, uh, 1810. Hmm. So this is the formation of, of Mexico. Sorry, 1910. Hmm. Wow, that recently... Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot to this story. And that was off the top of my head. I had to check that number. I think it's 1810. So there was that many more. Yeah, it is. It's 1810. Yeah, it is 1910. And that essentially is when Mexico formed as a country the way we know it today. Mm. The reason that happened is because they could never 
resolve the issue of the Maya. They kept trying to engage the Maya in a war that would decimate them. But every time they could get the Maya to gather on the battlefield, the Maya looked at their watch and said, oh, it's time to go and plant crops, and they dispersed. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Exactly. And so when you're dealing with a culture that has a time for war and a time for agriculture and a time for this and that and everything, and they don't depart from that calendar and it doesn't, they don't live along uh, arbitrary immediacies, mm -hmm. they hold true to the natural rhythms. How do you engage them in a war to the point that you can, you can move them off the land and essentially eradicate them? You can't. So this is another sort of rumor throughout history that the, uh, you know, the Aztecs were conquered for sure. But the Maya never were. Really? Wow. Yeah, the Maya have never been conquered. They're the only American continental First Nations community that was never conquered. Now, you could argue that they were in various ways, but I could simply argue that they weren't. Because they've never left their traditional villages. They've never left their traditional land. They continue but, to... But are, are they like the people in Peru and Bolivia that they are living so isolated and it's so hard to get there that nobody bothered... Sure, but they were moved off their traditional territories. Hmm. And their numbers were, were, were reduced so much that they almost ceased to exist. That's called conquering. Yeah. When you come to the Maya, you have six million Maya. They live exactly where they've always lived. They're, they're in a thousand villages that they've always lived in. They've never been moved off any of those villages. <laughs> hmm. You see what I'm saying? It's a, it's a vastly different consideration. It's kind of weird. Why why would they be spared? They weren't spared. There were so many attempts to conquer them. They were just so capable of resisting that uh, process. And they they weren't even uh, killed by the flus and. Oh yeah, they suffered a lot, but they managed to maintain their traditional lands, their traditional lifestyle, their traditional locations, and they didn't. I mean, there were many attempts to commit genocide on them. The most recent being the Guatemalan Civil War in the 80s. That was uh, an attempt to move them off their land so that those lands could be used to grow cocaine and make uh, an alternative um, uh, cocaine industry for the CIA. Yeah, I was just going to inject by courtesy of the CIA. And then out of that came But they um, withstood that too? Yeah, exactly. So it's really remarkable. It's really remarkable. Yes. Uh, how they've managed to, you know, and there's so many stories in there that we couldn't possibly get into it. But just in an overarching sense, you have to understand they were never conquered. And people don't even mark on that, not even the academic. So what finished them off before the Europeans came? Well, they weren't finished off. They were just in various states of being, let's say. So in the, in the pre-classic era, you had nation states like the El Mirador Basin, which now has hundreds of of cities that they've discovered it used to be just yeah but they abandoned didn't they abandon their places overnight this is what i'm getting at so the mirador basin in the in the pre-classic era built itself up uh, to the okay so academically over the last 20 years it was perceived that there was only one city in the mirador basin called el mirador mm -hmm. and it has one of the largest pyramids one of the largest man-made platforms potentially the largest pyramid in the world by volume mm. potentially I'd say that's easily disputable, but in any case, it's very big and it's large. It's larger by volume than the pyramid at Giza. But in any case, that was the sort of conception. That was the only city there. Recent LIDAR technology, Richard D. Hansen, he's a, an acquaintance of mine. He's been the head of that uh, dig for 20 years. 
he uh, funded LIDAR of the entire basin, and they found hundreds, hundreds of large-scale cities under there. Yeah. And you're right, they did abandon that, um, that basin almost immediately. And there were a number of reasons for that, uh, which get into some really uh, detailed minutia of, of archaeological, of uh, agricultural findings. But essentially, it's a buildup of a toxicity of uh, lime in the soil uh, as a result of some of their practices, which I'll get into later. So there's all kinds of reasons that they left the Mirador Basin at about 150 AD after pretty much a 2,000-year run. But then they didn't move very far. They moved up to the top plateaus around the basin where Cadillac Mool and Tikal and then further west you have Palenque and then further southeast you have Copan and so on. And this starts to build up uh, around 250 AD. And then that whole echelon of uh, city-states builds up to about the 9th century and you get the last inscribed date in that area around 909 AD by the modern calendar. Gregorian calendar. And as you can imagine, it's not really mysterious. It's just that it sounded mysterious and the media likes to promote this idea of a big mystery. But the reality is it's a, it's an environmental catastrophe. Hmm. When you have a buildup of that many people and they all tend to go to war over dwindling resources, just as we're doing now. And then there are some sort of anomalies that occur. So I'll give you one. Mm-hmm. Remember, we were discussing the whole concept of their um, tripartite universe and the role of the shaman king as a mediary, of course, mm-hmm. between gods and, and them. Well, obviously, a lot of those rituals and performances and everything and the timing of their, of their lifestyle is around agriculture. And so if the agricultural system starts to decay, then your confidence in the elite class starts to decay. Mm. So in our case, in, in our modern world, we, we look at the economy as sort of the driving force of our confidence. And of course, in, in our part of the world, and probably in your part of the world, a certain amount of freedom is, is the measure of whether or not an elite class is being successful in their duties. Mm. And that is all being called into question. So the integrity of our confidence in the underpinnings of our society are being pulled out from under us. And this causes a kind of a crisis, right? That goes deep. It goes very deep into kind of an existential crisis, right? Mm. Well, what occurred in the Mayan region is in the Paten region in the classic era is the um, buildup of these city-states. And as I'd mentioned when we were talking about this, uh, they used to reskin, I called it, um, their pyramids every 20 years mm-hmm. called the Katuna period. That's 7,200 days on the calendar. It's a very specific number. You'll talk to learn about that more. But in any case, um, they would have to rebuild up a new surface of lime and plaster on the pyramid. In order to get that, you had to burn a lot of lime. So you're cutting down vast amounts of forests as these cities get bigger and the structures. Yeah, I've read about the deforestation, yes. Right. So that's why. Huh. Well, that's part of it. And then what happens is you have a, a sudden, as the agricultural system has to support more and more people the nuances of that agricultural system de- uh, decreases the fertility of the soil. And that's sort of a general way of looking at it. It's like we're sort of looking at the same crises right now. If you talk to certain people, they'll say that we're, we're on a race to zero where we almost have zero topsoil on the planet. 
in order to support the population. That's another race to zero that we're in right now, another environmental crisis. Yeah. In their case, they reduced the amount of niacin in their soil to the point that when they grew their corn, it did not have the niacin in the corn that is necessary to digest corn. This precipitates a phenomenon called pellagra. Mm. You ever heard of pellagra? Yeah. Okay, so pellagra, essentially, you could eat as much corn as you want, but you starve to death. Mm. It's a slow process. It's painful as well. Uh, it causes, at the end, causes psychosis. Wow. <laughs> and skin deformations and, and all of that kind of thing. I mean, if you want to look it up while we're talking, it's, it's quite shocking. So you can imagine this pandemic sweeping through their civilization. Don't forget corn is not only their staple agricultural food, it's the portion of the God source that sacrificed itself to give them right. the uh, insight to recognize God. Remember, we were going through the, the creation, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's going to cause some, some real crises, right, in their spiritual concept of, of, uh, of what they're doing as part of building up these city-states and elevating these shaman kings and their, their daykeepers and nogules and, and, and everything who are supposed to be negotiating abundance for their culture mm. on their behalf. So that's happening. Then you have dwindling amounts of water because there were known to be droughts at that time that were very long-term droughts that uh, made all of this much more difficult and then, of course, an increasing population. So you just end up in a condition of systemic warfare, a massive uh, failure of the uh, ruling class perform the duties according to the structure of their cosmology mm. and this mass disease. And then you essentially build up to the point where everybody's like, that's it. We're out of here. Mm. They either die in a war or they die of starvation or they uh, abandon mm. the region, which is essential. So that's a summary of what happened. And that's not a mystery. The only mystery, the only reason there seems to be a mystery, and as you know, this in academia, there's all these different competing uh, academic institutions competing for money and none of them are allowed to agree with each other's research. Otherwise, they won't be able to compete for the funding they require. Mm. So they can't necessarily come together and unify all their theories and come up with a, a unifying uh, picture. But me as an independent researcher can do that. Yeah. I, don't, I don't have a PhD to protect. Yeah. I don't have a funding source to protect. I don't have tenure to protect. I don't have all those things to protect. Mm which is essentially the, the, uh, the rot at the core of academia. Mm. And uh, so for me, there is no mystery. It's, it's, um, it's completely explainable. And of course, I get into all of this uh, within the context of the novel. Mm. Okay. I'm just starting to get uh, different, uh, how you say, pieces in place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah? yeah. If I knew what I know now... Yeah. Before the interview, it would be a much better interview. <laughs> but I, I go no, no, it's great. It's this this whole process has unfolded more or less as I expected because uh, okay. you know, th this is really the you, you can hear I'm clueless. So. Well, kind of what you and I have just done mm. is what I take the reader through through the first half of the first novel in terms of Diego's um, oh, okay. discovery process, right? Because he has to discover yeah. all this stuff in order to tap into it. Yeah. And um, but yeah, and but I'm I'm think we're ready for for names and dates like this dude you're referring to all the time yeah. what was his name Diego Delanda yeah yeah I think it would be easy now in part two to start introducing characters and uh, yeah we can start introducing the facts 
history, right? Because he's a historic char- character, right? Sure, yeah. This is all factual history, right? Like I'm yeah. basically using um, classic era, or sorry, post-classic era factual history of the Spanish conquest era, and then weaving it with uh, speculation of events, right? No, no. As good as it can be the factual history that was written by the kings and queens of the classic era. So those are the characters. And then within that loom, I, I create the, the fictional tapestry. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Smart. So, yeah, we'll get into real names, real dates, right. real events, and then are some of the um, uh, fictional characters that bring it all together. Yeah, okay. That sounds great. So... Who's your protagonist and antagonist in your novel? I know you're you're using actual historical persons, right? Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little about these persons? Sure. I'll give you a summary of the novel. It'll kind of give some some, uh, some context. So the novel starts in 1511 AD. There was a ship that was returning from an expedition to find the lost city of gold, El, uh, El Mirador, or not El Mirador, sorry, uh, El Dorado, yeah. up the um, Amazona River. And as it returned, it came to an island that was sort of a midway point. And after they left the island, they were hit by a great big storm and they were shipwrecked. They weren't shipwrecked on a coast. They were shipwrecked at sea. So they floated around the sea between um, what is modern-day Cuba and the Yucatan coast. And eventually, after seven days at sea, drinking their own urine, they managed to uh, make it to the coast of the Yucatan, which is essentially today the Mayan Riviera. So you could suggest that, 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 that's very healthy, by the way. Yeah. Well, they had to do it, and they did. And so. <laughs> There were about 20 of them that survived the shipwreck, but as soon as they landed, they were attacked. And, uh, but, but wait a minute. So who were they representing? Spain? Yeah. These are Spanish. The, these are conquistadors? These are conquistadors, yes. Mm-hmm. By the way, did you, did you catch my uh, hypothesis about uh, Columbus? Yeah, you did. Yeah, I did. I, I listened to your, your three episodes on uh, the uh, Templars in America. And there's others. Too bad you couldn't. Too bad you couldn't bake it into your novel. <laughs> <laughs> I could. It would make a great novel, you man. know. Because I'm, I'm doing, I'm doing a fourth draft now, so I could. In fact, I'm always including oh. new things um, okay. in the novel as part of the organic process of going through a pre-launch. Yeah, well, feel free with yeah. running with that. But okay, <laughs> well, there's so- other ones that I like better. But anyway, I, we'll get into that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, these characters land on the ocean or on the shore of uh, Mayan Riviera, which is probably around um, the place of Tulum today. I don't know if uh, your audience knows that, but they can look that up. So it's one of the ruins, and they were attacked. Now, two people among them. There was very two very important characters, and you'll see why. One was named uh, Geronimo de Aguilar. He was a Franciscan monk, and he was just on the ship. Uh, Franciscan monks did a lot of things. H- h- hang on, uh, Stacy. You have to make us aware when you are talking about historic facts and when you're talking about your own invention. Are you still on historic facts yeah, now? Yeah, at the very beginning, I said uh, this is all historic fact. I'm not going to okay. tell you any invention today. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so these are the looms of factual history that I've used. So the entry point to the book is 1511 AD. Mm. There's a Spanish sailor uh, or this group. Uh, that uh, shipwrecked. Mm. Two among them that survived the shipwreck and the attack by Mayan forces when they land <coughs> is uh, Geronimo de Aguilar, a real Franciscan monk, mm. and Gonzalo Guerrero, more of a you know your average run-of-the-mill Spanish sailor. And I have a back 
story on both these guys. But mm-hmm. essentially, uh, they landed. The rest were sacrificed. Three or four were sold into slavery, these two among them. Uh, they were sold into slavery by one cacique, which is the, uh, the Mayan word for a chief at that time. And they were sold to two others. And they so wait a minute. So when the Mayans took prisoners of war, they made them into slaves? Sometimes, yeah. Or, or they mm-hmm. killed them or sacrificed them? That's correct. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. At that time. Yeah, mm. 1511 A.D. We're not talking about the peak of their civilization. No. They're more or less uh, collapsed twice at this point, uh, well, three times at this point, once in the Mirador base and once in the Paten region, and then the um, uh, the uh, post-classic states had more or less collapsed already in the 13th and 14th century. Plus, they had to deal with the inv- invasion of the Spanish, so I guess they adjusted... Uh, Actually, they had to deal with the invasion of the Toltecs and the uh, hegemony of control uh, throughout the region, particularly in the trade routes of the Aztecs. Oh, interesting. So so there were multiple wars going on. Oh, yeah. There was, there was a lot of action going on in the Marcas mm. at, at all times uh, throughout history. So at the time of this shipwreck, there really hadn't been a first contact moment. Between the mines. Oh, really? Yeah, not between the Oh, so they didn't know who these people were? They didn't know who they... Well, they probably knew who they were because they had already taken over the what is today Cuba. Okay. And they had um, chieftains who lived in Cozumel and Isla Mujeres who had more or less uh, acquiesced to collaborating with the Spanish at that point. Mm. And so there certainly would have been the word out. There were these people around. In fact, Columbus, you're... Your favorite. He, um, he <laughs> in his final voyage, ran across a Mayan uh, canoe. Uh, but I think this is um, 1506, mm. just before his death, 1506. Mm. He had come across um, a trade canoe that was moving its way up the coast. And they more or less sailed by. They didn't really have a contact moment, but they had a sail by kind of thing, a flyby. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, and that could be considered uh, the first contact uh, through academic history anyway. Of, yeah. of these um, two peoples. And if what you say is correct and what some of the other sources say is correct, they've had long-term uh, experience dealing with the Nordic tribes and also the Portuguese and Nice Templar and so many other sporadic sort of interactions. But maybe that generation themselves had not actually experienced the first contact mm. Mm. Uh, for quite some time. So it might have existed in their oral history but hadn't really come across anything for quite some time. So these two characters, Gonzalo Guerrero and Geronimo de Aguilar, they were sold into slavery. And just to summarize this story, they spent seven years uh, learning uh, Mayan, living among the Maya. They were slaves to the Maya. The interesting thing is that uh, Gonzalo Guerrero went native. He embraced the Mayan uh, way of life. He became a Mayan. The sailor guy, yeah. Yeah, he became a Mayan warrior. And he was the first... Uh, he produced the first mestizo children, so essentially the spawning of the Mexican race, which is a big space. That we know of. Yeah, that we know of. And, uh, and then uh, Gonzalo Guerrero uh, maintained his allegiance to Catholicism, tried to maintain the Christian calendar in his own mind while throughout captivity. Hernan Cortes, when he was considering what he was going to do, because he had essentially uh, ignored the direct orders of his superior in Cuba and wanted to more or less go freebooting on the coast, Mm -hmm. he was in Cozumel considering what he could do. He heard about two men living among the Maya that had long beards. Now, the Maya can't grow beards. Mm. 
They don't have facial hair. So he suspected that they were Spanish. He wrote letters to them and he sent them off through his network of collaborators, Mayans, right, mm-hmm. that uh, were of different tribes. That Essentially, these guys got these letters. And Gonzalo Guerrero was like, well, I'm not going back. And uh, Ronimo de Aguilar could not wait to meet up with Cortez. <laughs> so he, he, he fled his captor or fled his uh, – he actually didn't flee so much as he begged for the right to go and meet up with Cortez mm. on the assumption that he would come back. Of course, he never did. So when he did meet up with Cortez, he joined him and provided Cortez with his first translator. Right. And Intel, of course. <clears throat> uh-huh. So long story short, he discovers that the Mayacos is not where he should go to find booty. He should go down and, and look at these Aztecs. Because by then, Ronald Aguilar already knew that the Aztecs were the ones in control of everything. He'd already seen mm. uh, artifacts in gold with um, uh, very fine um, artisanship. And so he directed Cortez south. He was also doing that because it was probably wise to interrupt the hegemony of the Aztecs if they were going to create an environment anywhere else where it would be much easier to take over. Yeah. So go deal with uh, the Hydra's head, if you will. Mm. So that's what he did. How, how lucky for the Mayans that they captured these two guys as slaves then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, this is really like the turning point of that entire history because um, Gonzalo Guerrero remained among the Maya and he knew immediately uh, as soon as Cortez sort of arrived that, um, you know, the winds were going to change and yeah, yeah. they were going to invade. But he didn't defect and change sides again, did he? No, no. He was a true believer, a convert. Yeah, he was a true convert. He actually mm. negotiated peace among multiple tribes during the secondary wave of conquest and nice. uh, was their uh, military captain in um, beating back the Spanish for about 25 years. Mm. He was the most hated Spaniard in the Spanish fleet <laughs> for quite <laughs> some bet. time. I mean, he, for a long time, nobody knew who this guy was. Of course, the locals knew through their their own Spanish history, but no English speaking person really understood the story or importance of Geronimo de Aguilar and Gonzalo Guerrero, hmm. um, you know, until about 20 years ago. Hmm. Um, I mean, their, their record was there in history, but they, no real attention was paid to the importance of their influence. Uh, hmm. You know, and the fact that those two guys in that ship changed the course of history. One made it possible for um, Cortez to go and conquer the Aztecs. The other made it possible for the Maya to resist the conquest. Mm. Mm. It's really striking. Yeah. So that story that I just told you is embedded in the first novel. Nice. And within the context of that, uh, in 1549 AD, another real-life character, Gonzalo, or sorry, uh, uh, Diego de Landa, a Franciscan monk, arrived. Before you, before you uh, let me ask you a question. Sure. When you write this, are you trying deliberately to... When you give a narration, you create a, a drama, whatever, a story mm-hmm. that you try at all times to make sure that it could have happened so it never collides with the historic facts that we know. Yeah, I do my best. Okay. I do my best. I mean, I'm sure I'm going to get slaughtered. Because that's not, a, that, that's not a given, but it's interesting. It's an interesting twist. You know, people, mm-hmm. you have the liberty to violate all sorts of laws, right? So, but... <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to stick 
as much as possible to what would be I stick probable. To two I stick to the historical archives, whether they be Spanish archival history mm. or Mayan archival history. But within Mayan archival history is their entire cosmology, which appears as complete fantasy to the modern reader. Yeah. I mean, I include in the colonial era the, the, uh, the characters of the hero twins, which are a direct extract from the Popol Vuh, and they are magical beings with superpowers. Mm. So that's going to sound like fiction to anybody, right? Mm. But... Um, hero twins, you say. That, 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 that's like these two Spaniards. In a way, yeah, in a way. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So, so, that, so I do blur the lines. I essentially take Mayan mythology and insert it into factual history, and that blend, of course, comes across as fantasy. Mm. Uh, to the uneducated reader, but the the academics will look at it and go, well, that's an aberration, right? Mm. Uh, I don't look at it that way because what I'm doing is I'm building up a perspective, the Mayan perspective. Mm. The Mayans would have believed and and maybe even um, interacted with these powers and forces, and they may not have occurred within the personages of these hero twins, but they very well believe uh, today even that these powers and paranormal phenomena and, and realms exist. Mm. So I'm literizing their their belief system in action within factual history, known history. But, but the Mayan part of the equation is a gold mine for any exactly. <laughs> science fiction fantasy. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I, I just look at it as an opportunity to educate people on how Animism works. What is the paradigm of animism in terms of a, a concept of, of reality? Hmm. And then bring it alive within the context of this, this novel series. Because this is the paradigm that dominated this continent for 10,000 years. Hmm. And that seems eternal within the mind of somebody who's maybe living in the ninth century. Just as we think our paradigm exists forever. Because we've been living with it for what? 5,000 years of recorded history. Mm. This is the way life works, but everything dies. That's really one of the underpinnings of the entire novel, is that no matter what perspective you come from, it really isn't, doesn't mean anything. It's mm. made up. It's a fiction. Mm. And, and, uh, and this is sort of one of the underlying um, messages that I want to get across throughout the series. But anyway, back to the story. So yeah. this Diego de Landa arrives in 1549 A.D., there's a lot of evidence in the archival history to infer, it's not factual, it's just inference, that he was part of some sort of secret order that was um, developed by the, uh, the Roman Catholic Church um, right around the beginning of the, the uh, 16th century to contend with what they encounter or would encounter in the New World. And that is this tripartite priesthood of the shamans, the daykeepers, and the nagules, and all their sciences therein. Yeah. And they had to have some kind of spiritual force to combat them, because at that time, just like at any time, there is a spiritual war going on, a supernatural war. And the Spanish believed at that time under Emperor, um, he was the emperor of uh, Spain, essentially, or the Roman, Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, Charles IV. Mm. Anyway, he, they believed that during his reign, they could bring about the second coming of Christ if they could evangelize the entire world. Right. They really believed that. But why did they look for Christ figures in America? Well, there was a lot of pressure on the Roman Catholic Church in that period of time due to the Reformation. 
And they wanted to stamp out the Reformation. And big part of the psychological weaponry uh, among the church of talismans and icons that could be validated as source to Christ in some way. Mm-hmm. So if they can go off to the New World, New Spain, find some sort of evidence, whether it be archival or uh, you know, an, a talisman, an icon, something that they could validate as having a direct connection to Christ, having visited the New World in some mm. period in history, typically those three days during his death, mm. When they believed in elaborate facts. instead of instead of the twenty years uh, between, yeah, <laughs> he said, yeah, it could have been that as well. But uh, in my for for the purposes of my story, it's it's when he dies, and that oh, yeah. in that three day period, and it actually works really well with some astrology, uh, or not astrology, but astronomy, mm. uh, that occurred right around that time of the collapse of the Maya in the ninth century. Hmm. And essentially, it's this Venus cycle that um, the way the Mayans believed it, it looks like a resurrection story. So anyway, that gets woven into the story later. Hmm. So, yeah, he comes looking for evidence of Christ so that he can uh, send it back as a weapon against the Reformation. And um, and so that's his, his uh, edict from the Pope. So when he arrives, he not only arrives with this mission, but he arrives with absolution in advance for every sin that he might commit in the service of this mission. (laughs) (laughs) Every psychopath's dream. Exactly. Every religious psychopath's dream. Any psychopath's dream is is, uh, inconsequential action, right? Hmm. Um, You know, I can do anything to anybody anytime I want without consequence. That's the psychopath's Hmm. dream, right? Well, they had that. Yeah, and I don't have to hide it as I usually do. And I don't have to hide it. In fact, I am... I will be rewarded. I will be rewarded. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And he did arrive with that mentality, as did most of the Spanish at that time, because not only did they believe that they were to evangelize the world and bring about the second coming of Christ, it was a competition among nations, European nations, to be the first to do it. Right. We'll see how long it lasts. How do you want me to continue? Where, where Where were we? can't remember yeah so um, yeah the psychopath's dream yeah right so they were arriving with that attitude yeah they arrived with the attitude that um, not only did they you know have this sacred duty to evangelize the world it was a spiritual competition a spiritual war and more than that they had suspicions that this new world was in fact the garden of eden mm. the lost garden of eden and of course Encountering the Maya, who were a, uh, a, a culture of people who worshipped the feathered serpent, you can imagine what the perception was. They had essentially come across the uh, the Garden of Eden, the lost Garden of Eden, and that it was now infested with a devil-worshipping cult. So, you know, yeah, yeah. Right? So, so, so the facts sort of supported their ideology as they arrived. Um, now... Some really dramatic things happened, of course, in the um, in the conquest of the Aztecs, and I do get into it uh, sporadically as a way of building up tension throughout the novel. But essentially, boiling it down, when the Spanish arrived and more or less took over Tenochtitlan post battle, and, and uh, all the booty started going back to Spain, and they were sending more people over uh, to support the, um, the conquest efforts, essentially the sub subjugation of these, these conquered peoples, um, they discovered this priesthood and this priesthood of course had records, archives, 
El Dorado, was that uh, something they believed was in the Mayan? They didn't know where it was. They just So was El Dorado in the, uh, located in the Aztec oh, right. or in the Mayan areas, according to their beliefs? Well, okay, so El Dorado is kind of a red herring. It's a belief that a, another city of gold exists. Because when they received... All the when they conquered the Aztecs. Yeah, I know. I know it's not an actual place, but where did they, what was that in the Maya? Or the... So when they conquered the Aztecs, and there was so much gold there, they heard rumors of another city. Right. And the indigenous people in their psychological warfare ended up telling the Spanish, who they saw were so avarice for gold, that there was a city in the south that there was this city of gold. Right? <laughs> <laughs> they manipulated them. Right. Nice. And, and as a result, this sort of diverged, diverged some of their attention to go look for this red herring. So I think it was a, a First Nations myth that they created to send the Spanish off on a... To use the greed against them. That's yeah, very touchy. On a fool's errand, right? Mm. Mm. And they, they, they didn't know where it was. They just said it was to the south. They knew it wasn't among the Maya because they already had intel to know that there were no cities of gold. They didn't even have artisans of gold. They weren't mining gold. So, yeah, that's associated to the Inca. That's right. Yes, it was associated with the Inca in the sense that the Inca were part of the group of indigenous peoples that told them that it exists. Mm. Really, what that boils down to is uh, sunken treasure. The idea of a city of gold was a conflation of the actual myth, which is that this certain king in the um, in the uh, region of the of the Amazon River had had such a fabulous city of gold at one point, and that his reign ended in the uh, submersion of all that gold into a lake. But but to the natives, gold wasn't. I mean, their monetary system was based on cocoa beans, right? So gold wasn't associated to wealth in the same way as to us. In the Mayan world, the wealth was jade stone, cacao, salt. You know, right. things that they. So what, so for them, gold was just uh, something to build with. They didn't even use gold. Gold was not really part of the Mayan economy. Okay, but the Incas then, for, for them it was just a material to use? The Incas, there were gold, and again, I'm not a, an expert on the Inca, mm -hmm. so I can't really speak much about them. Um, mm -hmm. They're very far to the south uh, in comparison to where the Maya are, so we're talking about Peru. So, so where was the Incas uh, located? They're in Peru. Oh, all the way down there? Wow. Yes. yes. Wow. So it's quite far away. Right. Um, and there was gold there, but there wasn't a lot. And, of course, their civilization, they said, was built on the ruins of a previous civilization. And of course, you can see that when you go down there. That's what I know of them, is that their, their cities are built over top of these megalithic platforms yeah. and structures. Yeah, obvious. But, but, but the Aztecs, where were they located? The Aztecs are in Mexi Mexico City. Okay. is built over top of the ancient city of Tenochtitlan. And that used to be a lake. So that lake dried out as soon as the, as soon as the uh, Spanish came and they drained it. Right. So they literally conquered Tenochtitlan, an island city in the middle of Lake Texacoco, and uh, disassembled all the sacred uh, buildings and built all the um, colonial structures that surround the central Zocalo of Mexico City. Hmm. Okay. So if you go to Mexico City and you go to the Zocalo, you can see the major, the main church there and all the colonial um, palaces that surround the uh, the central um, Zocalo, the main square. 
And all of that stone is the original stone from the pyramids in the city. It's an octoplan. Mm. So, so the Olmecs, um, were they uh, also in this area? Yeah, the Olmec remnants of the Olmec is really kind of remnants of an unknown, undefined culture that lived in that area um, prior to this pre-classic period, mm. or maybe perhaps during the pre-classic period. Academics don't know. They have these giant heads, of course, that, that look African uh, on the on the face of them. Mm. Uh, that's a speculation. Nobody knows. But again, it's it's inference that there are uh, relationships between the Americas and the uh, and and uh, Europe and Africa yeah. uh, throughout antiquity that can't be explained. Hmm. Yeah. By the way, how how far north did the civilization the go? Maya. Uh, yeah, yeah. Did it go all the way up to Arizona, New Mexico? I think so. There's no academic um, corroboration for that, but there is a lot of uh, circumstantial evidence from a geodetic, astrological, and archaeological perspective. Some of the people that I can introduce to this series that are also um, associates of Lauren Jeffries uh, map out a lot of the same mathematical astronomical phenomena that occur throughout the Mayapaten region are duplicated in areas in Ohio, for instance. You know, in in the, the Washington area and various areas, mm. similar geodetic placement of of um, archaeological constructions based on astronomical phenomena and precise precise math. Mm. Let's put it that way. Mm. And so you have a congruous culture, maybe not congruous in terms of language or lifestyle or shamanistic traditions, but certainly in astronomical and geodetic architecture. Yeah. Mm. So these two characters came. The one facilitated Cortez's conquering of the Aztecs. The other... Uh, more or less organized the Mayan resistance against the uh, colonial invasion of the Yucatan region, which gets into the novel, right? So a lot of that history is explored in the novel, but it's explored through the eyes of Dagobah Landa, who arrives with this edict from the Pope to find evidence of Christ. And one of the first things he comes across is this unusual codices that speaks of Gonzalo Guerrero's uh, life among the Maya, Hmm. and all of his adventures. So he obtains this codice, and this is actually a codice that is uh, one of the um, the first that he ever encounters. And it's part of his learning process in learning how to read these, these codices. He finds out about it because he's part of, a, I would say, a, a secret order of exorcists who arrive in waves to the New World to more or less do spiritual battle with the Mayan tripartite order. Hmm. And he was part of that. And um, in coming, he is instructed to find evidence or look for evidence of Christ in the New World, uh, having existed sometime in antiquity, and the only place that he can really look for that are within the Mayan codices. Mm. And a bit about the codices, of course, the codices are the Mayan almanacs of time. These are the um, uh, mixture of astronomy, mathematics, and cosmology that the Maya used, the Mayan daykeepers and the shamans use as a uh, predictive model for future history and also as gateways for their um, their uh, psychonaut adventures. Mm. Yeah. 
And that's all factual. Right. So he arrives in 1549 AD, and within a 13-year period, he collects as many of the Mayan codices as he can in this adventure to find evidence of Christ. Uh, but in the process, discovers that there is... H- hang on, does, it, does he bring them to Europe? Or uh, no, he's he's a, a jealous lover at this point. Right, right. <laughs> uh, he feels that he is now outside of the um, jurisdiction of the Spanish uh, authority. He's outside of the jurisdiction, as they tended to do after having been in the New World for a while. Right. Yeah, that was common. And, and when you're dealing with things that are so outside of the paradigm that you came from, how do you even relate this stuff back to your authorities? Hmm. It's very. It becomes very. It becomes a crisis to the point that you you dissociate from your own origin story, mm. and that's really the story of Diego de Landa. Mm. He is the um, obviously the primary antagonist, mm. even though he's the central figure in the novel. He's really the uh, the character, the uh, five dimensional character that the uh, the audience reads about and loves to hate. I think. I hope <laughs> uh, in his in his. Uh, desire to achieve this this encounter with Christ. So back to what I was about to say, he discovers that there is this, you know, this science that allows these priests, these nogules specifically, to use a combination of, of place, time, astronomical phenomena, and, and psychotropic substance to not only read the Mayan codices in a, in a certain way, but travel through the fractal nature of time, as it's perceived by the Maya and coded in their mathematics, mm. uh, to not only, um, and this is the fictional component, of course, mm. I am extrapolating on ideas that do exist within the shamanistic tradition uh, that we discussed a little bit about. Um, you said that uh, Graham Hancock had spent some time uh, sort of exploring this idea of psychonauts. This concept exists, right? But I can't say that that it is a factual thing. All I can say is that I've had some very unusual experiences for myself that have blown away the idea that time is linear and do and probably could precipitate some kind of version of time travel that uh, is uh, indigenous in nature, shamanistic in nature. Mm. So I took that and I turned it into a more refined concept that he essentially uses these codices, performs these rituals, and transports his consciousness into the minds of the characters depicted on the codices so he can experience firsthand what's taking place within the narrative of those almanacs. Mm. And by discovering this, he is um, hooked with the idea that by virtue of this phenomenon, he he could even have perhaps a face-to-face encounter with Jesus Christ. Mm. And that's what lures him progressively down the primrose path to uh, just deeper and deeper and deeper degrees of corruption spiritual corruption Mm. a willingness to do anything to achieve this goal and in the process he becomes an unwitting pawn right which which really is but the goal really is consistent with his uh, his ideology yeah. values and paradigm yeah of course so so how corrupted he still sees christ as the pinnacle yeah so how corrupted uh, i mean <laughs> you could make a case for that he stuck to his guns sure but depends how you define corruption i define corruption as torture inquisition murder those types of things. Yes, but right. but by that time, that was the entire. I mean, that was what you were signing up for when you became. A, sure, 
Sure, but there has to be some kind of internal conflict, right? I guess, yeah. And at some point, you have to ask yourself, is this absolution in advance that I'm receiving yeah. from the Pope yeah. authentic? Yeah. Or am I risking my soul every time I do one of these right, things? Right, And that is the internal narrative that he undergoes. But we see that even today, how easily the egos convinces people to justify whatever. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's... Uh, Like, the old cliche is true. I mean, nobody is really evil. Very few people are evil. Like the proverbial Hitler Mm -hmm. had in his own uh, mind good intentions. What was good in his definition? That's why paradigms are so important to uh, understand. Most people miss that completely, but Mm -hmm. it all boils... Well, that's the core of this story. Paradigms, yeah. That is Mm. the core of this story, particularly of Delanda's story. Mm. And then, of course, uh, you have, the from the Mayan perspective, this clash of paradigm, right? Mm. Mm. Uh, And they're negotiating some sort of future in every action that they take because they know they're overrun with this thing. It's not going away. The Spanish, they're just going to keep coming. Right? And they keep hearing from all their um, communications that it's all up and down the continent. Mm. You know, what's happening in modern-day Mexico is happening in modern-day America. It's happening in modern-day Canada. It's happening in modern-day Central America, South America, everywhere. It's systemic, mm. to use that word that everybody loves to use today, systemic racism. <laughs> Right. This is true systemic. This is true systemic clash of civilization and paradigm. I'm racism. I mean, mm-hmm. people are not aware. I mean, some are, but you know the extent of the horrors. Um, sure. Maybe you could uh, tell us a little of that clash, how it unfolded. Well, big picture terms, the speculation is that the uh, first. 75 to 100 years of contact between Europeans and the Americas precipitated 250 million to 500 million deaths. Yeah, wow. And obviously, the majority of that is disease. Uh, a lot of well, well, let's let's say the col- colonial invaders and the uh, natives, because there were obviously Europeans, not just Europeans, even the Phoenicians have been said to reach the Americas, mm-hmm. which there are solid... Uh, uh, Phoenicians, the Sumerians, yeah. And, and maybe even Egyptians. But anyway, hundreds of millions, and not all of them were due to smallpox and stuff like that. No, but the vast majority, uh, you could speculate, were, because that's a much more um, spreadable consideration, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have the Aztecs being mass-murdered, right? You have to understand that the uh, tribes that were surrounding that area hated the Aztecs because the Aztecs had kind of a a different way of handling human sacrifice than the Maya. <laughs> They're famous for that. You know, the Maya believed that um, the only uh, valuable blood that could be sacrificed for the gods was noble blood. Mm. And this That's a healthy paradigm. I mean that's wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's yeah. very rare in history. Mm-hmm. That <laughs> yeah, there's this theology of course that uh, that the Maya and, and all uh, American cultures were involved in these, you know, heinous forms of sacrifice that were massive on scale and you know the the, the good guys came in and put a stop to all of that, right? Mm. That's sort of the the uh, Christian mythology around the colonial era. But how healthy it would be if only more civilizations had shared that, 
sentiment that if you're going to sacrifice to the gods, you have to choose uh, from the nobility. Uh, that would, uh, I, I guess, that would solve most of our problems because the, <laughs> the, yeah. then the elites would not be so secluded from the masses. If you catch my drift. Mm-hmm. Well, as I started to read the um, inscribed history, you know, the history that's inscribed in stone among the um, classic era city-states, I really started to fall in love with the Maya because of this unique yeah. dichotomy of ideas. Not only did they believe that the only, um, the, the most appropriate sacrifice to the gods was noble blood, and so the nobles jealously maintained their ownership of that mm. ritual. Mm. Uh, they also believe that the shaman king, when they went to war between city-states, were should be the first and were the first to engage in battle on the battlefield. Yeah, that's always a healthy when the general is in front of the troops. Can you imagine mm. today how that would play out? You'd have uh, George Bush and, uh, yeah. and Saddam Hussein duking it out. <laughs> yeah, Saddam Hussein actually suggested that to yeah. to solve the whole thing with a one to one. And Jesse Ventura has been on the barricades forever that in uh, to make a rule mm-hmm. in, uh, of law that whenever you invade someone, you're going to send the sons and daughters of the ruling class decision makers. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that's how it was among the classic. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Ooh, I just noticed the time. Uh, you know what, yeah. uh, Stacey? I think we have to make it a three-parter. I suspect we have to. Sure. Because uh, we can't have part one lasting one and a half hour mm-hmm. and part two lasting three and a half hour, if you see what I mean. Sure. So just, I'll see what uh, happens on the edit board. But well, I think what we can do in the third part is really get into the narrative of the ninth century in terms of who the king No, no, I'm talking about what we've done. Look. Oh, I see what you're saying. Right? I see what you're saying. I see so, what you're saying. so just indulge me here, okay? Yeah, I get it. It's not going to be congruous. So. Yeah. Um, um, but having fun here, man. It's great fun. Great. No problem. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. Are you Sounds good, it? man. Uh, it's yeah, kind of a bit worried because uh, the sound is bad. Uh, you're getting cut off. They can't hear clearly everything you say all the time. It's going to be hell to mm-hmm. up this file. Lots of work. Okay. And I'm at low energy, so I'm afraid it won't be as good as I was hoping. But we'll see. Please. We'll see. And, and I, it's not on your. I mean, it's nothing you can do to change this. Okay. So uh, I'm not blaming you or anything. <laughs> so wait, a minute. wait a minute. So wait a minute. You're telling me that my voice isn't coming through because my audio is not good. Yeah, uh, three reasons. One, the way you talk is. Let's see if I can emulate it. Uh, so I'm saying something and then I'm going like this, and then and then I come and, 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 and it's at the down. Yeah, it is at the down parts. It's going to be hard to hear. I see. Clearly, uh, but I, I'm going to try clean up the audio so it will be clearer. <laughs> and then it's and then the audio sounds pretty. Lousy, but like I said to you, when I took the sound check, it sounded better in the recording itself than on my ear. So I'm hoping okay. that's still true. Okay. So that's the I second. Could've. And the third is that when when you use a laptop, you I, are... Yeah, but I could use a... Like I can, you told me that the sound was great, so I just didn't bother plugging yeah. in the uh, microphone. I could do that. And... Oh, you have a microphone. Yeah, please use that. But... Every time I plug it in, I can't hear the person on the other end because it cancels out the uh, speakers. I don't know why. So kind of ruins the intention. Another, yet another pointless <laughs> piece.
hardware. You know? But if you have a headset too, maybe that too, but at least a microphone, because I, th- mm-hmm. I don't know if it will do that with a microphone, but I noticed that the laptop microphones automatically disconnect mm. when they hear a conflicting sound from the other end, which is horrible. Right. Because any... As you know, one tone can be fine and good, but an accord isn't necessarily cacophonic, right? Yeah. So when two sounds are at the same time, it's an accord. It could be great. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't like that. It ruins my editing when it, it, it becomes like a silent point in the middle of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, or, or, or it gets twisted. You'll understand. I can play something for you and demonstrate. Yes, yeah, do that. So I have an understanding and I can kind of work around it. Well, the best workaround is to not have a laptop system. Uh, at least a microphone, I think, will will fix that. Yeah. Well, I wish he had told me that because you said the sound was so great that you didn't need. Yeah. I didn't think we needed to do anything. I didn't know you had a mic. Usually, people with laptops uh, are, you know, they're so clueless. They re- <laughs> usually don't have a mic. But I'm just realizing, of course, you're traveling, mm-hmm. so you don't have any. I mean, a laptop is than what you would have. Or, or, or would it be the same if you were at home? Well, I have three microphones at home, and I use my laptop wow. anyway. Um, right, but right, the right. two microphones that I have, one I plug in, it's a lapel mic, and then because I don't have a splitter, I lose your audio. I can't hear you, and that, uh, that doesn't work. No. Then I have no. kind of more of a rudimentary earbud thing that you would use for an iPod kind of thing, mm. and it has a microphone and ear earplugs that work off the same jack, so that'll work fine, but they're not as good as my lapel mic. Mm. But uh, isn't that kind of risky to use a laptop as your main system? What if it gets destroyed or... Lost or oh, I have backups. I have um, I have cloud backups and I have hard drive backups that I make every day. Okay, so you have stationary too. Yeah, yeah. I've got like a I've got hard drive backups and I have cloud storage backups for everything on my on my laptop. And then of course I've got written notes and everything. And so I I'm not going to lose anything. That's for sure. Okay, <laughs> so smarter than me. I lose stuff all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I have in the past, and that sharpened me up. So I've got yeah. four hard drive backups wow. that are separate, wow. that separate from my computer, and I just plug them in once a day, and they go through an automatic um, uh, backup. It's called Time Machine. And then I have a same thing with my computer that's connected to the cloud storage that automatically backs up everything four times a day. I don't even know it's doing it. It just does it. Ah, so what? So so you're basically offline with that, and then you plug it in and copy. Yeah, and then uh, put it a, back offline. Yeah, there's an external. I've got four external hard drive backups, which are hard copies here. And then if those were to get lost or stolen or deleted somehow, I have cloud storage, which is a server system that is connected to my computer at all times. Yeah. that backs up everything. So. I, I don't trust clouds. Cloud is just a fancy way to describe someone else's computer. Well, that's true. Mm. But if I were to lose my computer or lose all of these these hard drives for whatever reason, maybe they were stolen or taken or yeah. they got wiped out through uh, some magnetic phenomena at the airport. I, oh, yeah. I was going to talk about that. You know, the the electromagnetic, um, you know, a 10x sunspot. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. V you, you know about that, right? Wiping away everything electronic on their planet. Yeah, yeah. That could be that could be the cataclysm yeah. that takes place uh, in 2087. Because it seems to be our whole civilization is moving to big tech, right? Yeah. Um, and and that might be the cataclysm that uh, takes out everything. And um, that's something I. Yeah, but they say they say we are technologically equipped to deal with it if we prioritize to defend against it, which for some weird reason we're not doing. No, no, they do. They put everything deep underground. Right, which is how you defend against it. Oh, yeah, their own stuff. Yeah, but I'm talking about normal society. Oh, no, they don't care about us. <laughs> no, no, no. They probably want us to, because you know what will happen? They will emerge as gods. Exactly. We will be cavemen, and they will uh, be the complete controllers. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the point I'm making, is like, mm. we're not the chosen ones. Mm. But that whole ideology doesn't mean that they're going to be successful. No, of, um, course, be of course. Because you can't predict cataclysm, yeah. right? And you certainly can't predict the conditions of cataclysm once it starts. Mm. And whoever makes it through is a complete random process, in my opinion. Mm. Mm. And uh, and that's based on some greater intelligence that I could not possibly describe or tap into, but I believe it exists. Absolutely. But even without that intelligence, it's just, you know, nature of existence is too complex for one small part of existence, which is would be a small human mind to, you know, cover everything. Okay. But they, the problem isn't that. The problem is their huge egos and their huge, ig they're fools, right? Uh, yeah. You know, the old saying, a, a, a wise know he's a fool, a fool thinks he is wise. And that's the, 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 our leaders. So yeah. when they have that mindset, they are, they are facilitating that, oh, yeah, yeah, we can go on, we can do whatever. Even if they are traveling between planets today, yeah. without a home base, they're going to decay pretty fast. Without Earth as a technological headquarters, they will end up as, you know, when we read about the ancients, how they flied around, and then it ended up with a few symbolic leaders in the different colonies like Egypt. Oh, I see. And before you know it, John Smith has taken over. <laughs> the man in the street has taken over and they are died out and just fragments are surviving. That is what would happen after a while for them next repetition of that scenario understand what i mean absolutely and i mean that's why i couldn't answer your question as to what all these end cycles are and what the sequence are because right. it's just too grand a story for the maya to have conceptualized or even bother trying because it, what's the point they understood that <laughs> right yeah yeah right so that's kind of where I was yeah. coming from there as well. Excellent. Okay, so so there's a lot of knowledge here, Stacey. Uh, I suggest we break it up now because we're still not at the end. <laughs> <laughs> and we take a new, let's induce a new break. I guess you need some more coffee and probably uh, a leak or two. Yes, I look forward to it. And I wanted, to, I wanted to point out, too, if you want to continue this conversation at some near future date, we can actually get into the nuances of the historical record of the ninth century so people have a real understanding of that. Right. So if there's some interest in that, we can come back to that. Sure. Even more nuances. Mm -hmm.
Okay, wow. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, you did, uh, you did go into uh, your novel and described a lot of the story. Sure, but, but we didn't actually get into who the kings and queens are and what their actual narrative story arcs. Right. Now, that's possible if you want to do that. That's what I'm saying. Okay. See, the third part won't do a third part. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to yeah, it. Yeah, so let's take a break. Okay, yeah, go for it. Go Five minutes, it. and uh, we'll continue. All right, well, I'll go. Okay, okay. thank you for, for this session. Okay, okay. Awesome, 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 awesome. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks.